Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today in episode 90, we're going to try a novel format for an episode. At the request of one of our listeners, Dr. Melissa Newalt, we will have a group literature-based discussion of treatment options for submacular hemorrhage, including anti-VEGF therapy, intravitreal pneumatic displacement with or without tissue, plasma activator, and pars planted vitrectomy. Drs. Jonathan Chang of the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Dr. Will Park of Minneapolis, Minnesota will now join me. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by uh, two retinal specialists. First, in alphabetical order from University of Wisconsin-Madison, Dr. Jonathan Chang. John, how are you? Good, Jay. Nice to be here again. Thanks a lot for having me. And next, uh, from Vitriol uh, Retinal Surgery PA in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, Dr. Will Park. Will, thanks for coming back. Thanks, Jay. Good to be, good to be on again. So this is an episode that was inspired by an email from one of our listeners who is also a practicing retinal specialist, and they want us to talk a little bit about treatment options for submacular hemorrhage. So this is a little different than other episodes we've done where we've covered a specific article or a, a group of older articles that get our masterpiece retinas. So we're actually uh, going to talk specifically just about submacular hemorrhage literature and then kind of our experiences in a group discussion for each option. So um, I'll start with just background. So we do know subretinal or submacular hemorrhage, there are various etiologies. Um, there's been studies done back in the 80s um, as well in the early 90s um, talking about how uh, experimental subretinal hemorrhage um, as well as pathology of subretinal hemorrhage in rabbits um, causes rapid damage. And, and it's not clear exactly why this is, but there are several theories. Maybe it's from mechanical damage as the clot that forms contracts. Maybe it's a diffusion barrier for causing ischemia. Uh, maybe there's a component of iron toxicity as well. And um, there was a, a good study done by uh, Avery et al. in 1996, which is looking at the natural history. So just talking about what happens if you uh, observe um, submacular hemorrhage. And this was subretinal hemorrhage in AMD. Uh, and there was progressive vision loss over time and a mean of three and a half lines at 36 months and visual outcomes were um, variable. There were a component of patients even with observation about 33% had improved or stable vision. So not great, but some patients do actually improve despite no treatment. Um, things that were risk factors for worse final vision, initial size of hemorrhage would make sense and how thick or elevated the hemorrhage was. Um, the only thing we'll say about observation, uh, Bennett and all in 1990, there was a, a paper in uh, American Journal of Ophthalmology talking about factors prognostic of visual outcome in patients with subretinal hemorrhage. And uh, two things which influence a lot of our decision making today, um, risk factors for um, a uh, worse outcome were AMD as an uh, etiology or associated with the hemorrhage, as opposed to choroidal rupture, which may reflect more of a trauma etiology, and of course, thicker hemorrhages with a worse outcome than thinner hemorrhages. And um, there's been multiple case reports that trauma is different than wet AMD. So traumatic hemorrhages, these are younger patients. These are patients that may not, uh, they, you may have more risks with the uh, treatment options we're going to discuss that maybe trauma situations are ones where the options we're going to discuss aren't as relevant. We're going to focus mostly on subretinal hemorrhage AMD. But um, Will, any, any, any thoughts or comments about subretinal hemorrhage and setting a trauma and how you usually approach that? Yeah. Uh, I guess my only my only initial thought on that is that it obviously depends on it, presumably the trauma the, the subretinal hemorrhage is from something along the lines of a choroidal rupture, 
uh, and and in that circumstance, it obviously depends where the corruption where the coital rupture is, and and so it, oftentimes you can have a fantastic outcome if you go after subarachnoid hemorrhage in, in in trauma when the subfoveal choroid is is unaffected. I don't know, John. Well, I guess um, do you guys mean in terms of doing like a more aggressive intervention, like some sort of surgery? Right, right. Like the, we're going to talk about different options. Um, do you yeah. usually watch? I mean, I usually I've, I was always taught to kind of like Will said, there's often choroidal rupture, and some of these patients can do surprisingly well depending on the location of the choroidal rupture. Location is everything, right? So if it's through the fovea, outcome's going to be poor. If it's not, a lot of times the hemorrhage will go away, and the vision will actually improve quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think. I'm just trying to think back. Usually, you know, in, in the setting of trauma, I feel like either there's just so much other th things kind of going on that, you know, almost you're just worried about like the integrity of the globe or some other problem in addition to just, you know, is there some subretinal hemorrhage or, you know, to see like a mild subretinal hemorrhage without a macular choroidal rupture, I feel like not a very common thing. I don't know if, that, if you guys have a greater experience with that, but at least my experience, usually there is a macular choroidal rupture, and that's kind of mm -hmm. going to be the limiting factor over overall. Like, um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think back too. I yeah, I, I agree, John. I'm not sure I've ever. I, I I've done I've done I've I've evacuated subretinal hemorrhage a couple times after trauma. In both circumstances, I, I was pretty confident about where the damage was, and I, I think one time it was because the subretinal hemorrhage was had developed or it expanded in the after I'd already gotten a look into the back of the eye, and I knew that the fovea was decent. And, um, you know, before the hemorrhage extended and, and the other time, I think I just, uh, the, the rupture was, like, it was just evident. You could see, you could kind of pick it up through, through the blood. But, um, but I agree, I kind of agree with John. I'm not sure that that, at least for me, that doesn't come up that often that I find myself wanting to address subretinal hemorrhage after trauma. You know, I, I saw, I saw a patient with an RD, I saw a patient with an RD after a trauma and he had some subretinal hemorrhage that when I, you know, when I, when I fixed the RD, it was clear that we had kind of pushed some blood out as well, but it really was not kind of the same, you know, kind of dense hemorrhage. I mean, there's probably more just a little bit of light blood and subretinal fluid than really any kind of, you know, massive subretinal hemorrhage or anything like that. Right, and right, and like I was just talking, we were just talking about, it, it's the thickness that has a lot of the role besides etiology in the, uh, in the outcomes. Um, the last thing before, you know, observational studies are always interesting. They usually tend to be older now that we have better treatment options, but any surprises that a third of these patients on average um, will improve without treatment, even the AMD patients? Well, I mean, what are we calling improved, right? You know, um, we don't know where they started. And, That's true. Uh, maybe, you know, improved could be a few letters, you know. Um, so it, it's hard, hard to say the stable makes a little more sense, I think, just because you know, if they had, if they started with poor vision from the hemorrhage and they had some scar or atrophy underneath, you might not see much improvement afterwards. And just, just that's, that's a good point. Just to get perspective from that Bennett study, the average final visual acuity in the AMD submacular hemorrhage group was 2,700. So essentially, you know, we're talking count fingers vision, um, essentially end stage AMD as a final vision. So, um, okay. So uh, let's talk a little bit about treatment options. We're going to spend a little time talking about anti-VEGF, then about in-office uh, gas and or TPA options, and finally surgery. So, John, I'm going to let you get started just talking a little bit about uh, the literature for anti-VEGF, and we can kind of discuss as a group our experiences. Yeah, I think, Jay, you kind of alluded to this before. You know, we don't really see a lot of observation um, for subrenal hemorrhage associated with macular degeneration anymore because we have treatment for wet AMD, and so most of the time, you know, you're going to pursue some, something as kind of the, the minimum, right? Um, you know, and so I think anti-VEGF is kind of, in a lot of ways, 
um, evolved because it's the most I don't let's sense I don't want convenience not quite the right word but you know it, it's the it's maybe the lowest risk um, procedure that you could do for a patient who has um, you know a subretinal hemorrhage and um, I think uh, you know that would I think maybe the minimum that you should be expected to do for someone um, you know who has um, who's had subretinal bleeding so we kind of I know before all this we kind of talked about two um, papers in particular the first was with um, was from Baskin Palmer um, Gary Scheinbaum was the first author and from the retina service with Dr. Flynn, Rosenfeld, Smitty, where they looked at 19 patients who had had um, neovascular AMD, a submacular hemorrhage, as they defined it, greater than 50% of the lesion area um, that they treated with anti-VEGF monotherapy. And I think they looked at the improvements in, in vision and over three months, six months, 12 months, you know, patients gained slightly more vision from 12 letters at three months, 18 letters at six months, and then 17 letters and about a year's follow-up. Um, you know, not a not a bad series, although by month 12, the follow-up kind of dropped out a little bit. And it's one of these retrospective studies, so hard to, you know, hard to um, know, you know, in terms of full treatment and everything. But they showed some nice examples where, you know, some patients do remarkably well as the hemorrhage clears away, and then others have poor vision and, you know, mostly related to geographic atrophy uh, centrally. Um, so, Jay, the second study that we looked at um, as we were talking about things was a subgroup analysis from the CAT trial. So, this was a paper that came out in Ophthalmology 2015. It was actually the first author was uh, one of my colleagues here, Mike Altawheel. And uh, this subgroup was patients who had CNV lesions that were composed of greater than 50% blood um, and in the CAT trial. So, there are about 84 patients in that. And, you know, the overall CAT trial is over 1,000 patients, but 84 patients in this subgroup um, and these, these patients actually had very similar gains in vision um, compared to the other patients being treated for AMD with lesions of less than 50% blood so, or even no blood. So basically at one year or two years, they gained about nine letters, and then compared to the other study patients where the gains were seven letters at one year and six letters at two years. So that was not statistically significant. Um, I think, you know, they noted that there was greater fibrosis if you'd had a larger hemorrhage. So basically um, 29% at one year, 37% at two years in the greater than 50% blood had fibrosis present um, as opposed to in the rest of the trial, 17% at one year and 21% um, at two years. So, you know, I, I think just the other note was um, at both one and two years, those patients who gained 15 letters, less than 15 letters, and then more than 15 letters all were very similar rates as well. So kind of the different groups of vision gain were also very similar. Um, so, you know, th that's kind of the most recent, I think, larger or one of the larger studies that's looked at um, anti-VEGF therapy in patients with subretinal um, hemorrhage or, you know, retinal hemorrhage. So I think that's probably what guides a lot of our, our therapies, um, or at least kind of, like I was saying before, kind of the minimum um, treatment for these patients. So we're going to save some of the, I think that the, once we go through options, we can kind of have a discussion of when we each kind of choose to use the options and based on the literature. So we'll save that discussion for the end. But just um, one thing we'll discuss, Will and John, I'll start with Will. If you do choose to use anti-VEGF for AMD with subretinal hemorrhage, what is your treatment interval? How long do you treat for it? And how long do you keep a patient on a given interval? I, <clears throat> pardon me, I, I, I start off with a pretty rigid four-week schedule, and I 
treat until I feel like there is either no hemorrhage left uh, or it has become just a big fibrotic plaque and the patient wants to give up and, and they look otherwise stable. Uh, and I, depending on the size of the hemorrhage, I do think that, that uh, angiogram has a role down the road in terms of helping to identify active leakage. Uh, and the, the real dilemma for me is in that patient who maybe, let's say hypothetically, they went from uh, 2,400 to 2,100 with six shots of Avastin and there's no more blood there, how much can I ex extend them out further because they've already demonstrated a capacity towards a big hemorrhage? And I, I, I confess, I, I very rarely will ever take a patient off of anti-VEGF uh, at that point in time. I'll keep them on a quarterly injection or a Q2 month injection or something. Yeah, John, how about you? You usually will keep them tight? Um, I think pretty similar to what Will was saying. So, you know, I would start someone out with a monthly injection. Um, usually the indication would be to kind of changing their um, or discontinuing their therapy would be kind of where, where's the vision. Um, so if they have better vision, like Will said, I'd probably continue their treatment at, on some regular basis, whether that's every two or three months or something like that. Um, if they're, you know, more significantly impaired, um, I may consider discontinuing treatment once whatever looks like active hemorrhage, and I would probably define that as kind of red blood. You know, often you see that kind of around the borders before it kind of centrally it kind of becomes more fibrotic. I'd probably just continue treatment until that kind of red blood is is either resolved or gone, okay. just in, you know, under the assumption that, that that's the more active disease or indication more and, active disease. Yeah. And can I, just, can I just emphasize that I, I think that for a lot of people out there that, that Flynn, Bask, and Palmer study on monotherapy was, uh, was really uh, quite important because, as we all know, we have a fair number of patients we don't want to take the operating room for one reason or another in this circumstance. And uh, to have that kind of um, knowledge that that's not that that's, a, that's an effective therapy in many people uh, was was a pretty um, fantastic you know piece of literature to have available. Um, I would also point out that, that and I think we'll get to this a little bit later, but just in that study, uh, the the size of the hemorrhage was wildly variable, mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of those hemorrhages were not terribly large. So and that, that brings up the the follow up question. So let's say this is a patient who's already receiving anti VEGF, and let's say they're on a treat and extend kind of interval. They present and they have, let's say you look in, it doesn't have to be massive, you see hemorrhage. Um, how, let's say if someone's on an eight-week interval, uh, regardless of the medic medication you're using, Will. Um, how much do you cut them back if you see heme on your, on your 90 or 28 doctor exam? I think it depends. You know, blood, there's a lot of different types of blood. If it's just a little bit of, a relatively small bit around a prior, uh, you know, net, then I might only drop them back. You know, I don't know, two weeks or so. But if it's if it's a substantial subretinal hemorrhage, then I, I drop I would drop everybody back to monthly again and start over. And just to emphasize, you know, there is no data as when we saw, as far as we know, about comparing different agents for anti-VEGF in this setting. Uh, so, do either of you have a preference of agent, or is whatever age is bevacizumab something that you guys go to in this situation, or what is kind of your preference, John? Um, I you know it really just varies because I don't think like you said there's great data. You know, I just saw a patient yesterday who's getting treated monthly. In her better eye, she's got macular, you know, wet AMD. She's had a little bit of subretinal fluid, but not too bad over the last three months. Um, so we just continued bevacizumab treatment monthly. And then yesterday I saw her. She had some retinal, you know, some subretinal hemorrhage. Um, it wasn't in the fovea. Um, I continued her on Avastin, but, you know, it's not really clear to me that if, we, if I switched to ILEA or Lucentis, that that would necessarily make a difference. Um, 
you know, and she'd been on one of the other agents. I'm not sure if I would switch to another one just because of that. You know, it's, I guess, you know, the, you know, Dan Martin had done that study in the CAT trial where they looked at patients that you might have switched otherwise and followed them through, and it turned out that they weren't switched, and they you know, did just as well as patients who were switched, right? I, I believe that was the conclusion. And so, you know, maybe just continuing therapy is the most important thing. And if you're, if you're already at monthly, you know, it's not like you're trying to extend them to some longer interval where maybe using a different medication might make a difference. Um, that said, there's also a lot of information about, you know, this kind of tachyphylaxis effect or some, you know, is that, is that real? And do people become either desensitized or does their disease change or something in their responsiveness? And so, you know, I'm not, I'm not certain what the right thing would be, but maybe I don't have a formal algorithm either set for any given patient. Right, right. Well, um, and, and, and ahead, then well. just the one, one quick thing to throw out there, this is obvious to everybody, but, but if, if a patient has uh, subretinal hemorrhage, especially recurrent subretinal hemorrhage, it's probably worth just considering the, the polypoidal variant in that circumstance, depending on the, the rest of the appearance. Yeah, and one of my attendings in fellowship used to say if there is you know, a massive, very thick subretinal hemorrhage in the setting AMD, um, the three things you should think about, they don't necessarily have to be there, but would be, first one would be polypoidal. Uh, the second would be some sort of RAP lesion or a type 3 CNV. And the third would be uh, anticoagulation. Is this a patient who's anticoagulated or multiple antiplatelet agents? Just kind of things to keep in mind. Um, if you do see someone with a massive hemorrhage, kind of look for those things. Uh, so I'm going to talk a little bit about, so Will, you referenced, you know, some of these patients we don't want to take to surgery. So people have been thinking about this before the anti-VEGF era. Uh, and the next thing we're talking about is in-office treatment with a mixture or combination of uh, intravitreal uh, tissue plasminogen activator TPA uh, and gas to try to displace the subacular hemorrhage. So the idea would be you liquefy the clot and displace it. Uh, now, more recent literature, and when we talk about surgery, it'll be similar. Anti-VEGF is always sort of incorporated because everyone implicitly understands the risks are low and you're decreasing the CNV activity. But uh, in 2001, anti-VEGF was not available. So there was a paper from ophthalmology by Haddenbach et al., which is a prospective study looking at 43 eyes. There was no comparison group, and they did average follow-up of six months. They injected TPA um, with gas, and uh, they got 80% displacement of blood under the fovea. Uh, and again, this was defined uh, by clinical examination, but um, the patients who gained vision initially, that one interesting take-home point was patients, there was a lot of these patients gained vision. So it was 44% initially. Um, this dropped to 30% over six months. And this is a theme we'll see also with surgery is some of these patients may gain a lot of vision initially, but then some of these patients still slip back and lose vision. Uh, and they found that the biggest risk factor for worse vision was having uh, decreased, um, having the hemorrhage present or symptoms present for more than two weeks. If you look at their the curve from their paper, the initial visual acuity was actually very predictive of the final visual acuity. And that implicitly makes sense uh, to all of us. And if you looked at the um, some of the case examples, they showed several case examples of successful displacement of the hemorrhage, but they showed examples both ways, both with mass, uh, tremendous improvement in vision and cases where you displace the hemorrhage with the vision really doesn't come back. And again, this was based on fundus photography and clinical exam. Uh, more recently, Cho et al. Uh, in Retina 2015, now there were people incorporating anti-VEGF in the office with pneumatic displacement. So they looked at uh, using ranibizumab in combination with initial displacement. Um, and they retrospectively compared people who had displacement versus none. Everyone got ranibizumab um, for the first three months and then as needed. Uh, both groups improved uh, vision and uh, central fovea thickness, now measured on OCT. There was no difference between the monotherapy group 
or the uh, combination group in terms of final visual acuity or central foveal thickness. Um, but in terms of three-line improvement, even though there was no difference in average visual acuity, 57% uh, of the combination group got three lines back versus 37.9% of the monotherapy group. And the limitation here is um, the visual acuity, um, you know, maybe there are certain factors that predict that they may choose to take a patient for gas and they may get three-line improvement, but the final vision may actually be better. Um, so final vision uh, depended mostly on baseline vision, just like in the other study, how long the symptoms had been there, just like the other study, hemorrhage size, like we talked about in the observational series. So just to talk about this, so I um, personally have not done this, and, and I think that it's a reasonable option if you want to try something in the setting of a massive hemorrhage in conjunction with anti-VEGF to avoid surgery. Um, I think one of the, the problems I could see with this is if a patient isn't necessarily healthy or clear for surgery, many of these patients may not be able to position. But um, first, let's start with John. John, your experience with intravitreal TPA and or gas together with anti-VEGF? Yeah, um, so I had one patient um, who had a massive, sub, let's call it a large subretinal hemorrhage, um, with, you know, associated with AMD. They had um, actually not been previously treated with anti-VEGF. And so um, I decided to go ahead and try pneumatic vitrelysis. It had happened within about 24 or 48 hours. Um, I was able to get um, TPA and then do the gas injection. And unfortunately, the patient developed a retinal detachment in an area of lattice. So, you know, I think uh, just one warning would be just be careful about peripheral pathology, um, you know, in some of these patients as well. I think probably just more focused on the, um, the macula, really, um, and not uh, maybe just everything else that was kind of happening and trying to help the patient's vision maybe aggressively. Um, I do think it's great because, like you said, Jay, you don't have to go to the operating room. But I think for the average practitioner, the other difficulty is you don't really have TPA available on hand most of the time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's hard to just, oh, someone walks in your office with a large subrenal hemorrhage and then say, all right, let's, let's just inject TPA. You may have to do that on a different day or get it or even may not even have it accessible. I don't know, Will, in your practice, if you're able to easily get TPA in the clinic. Um, but there's also been, you know, I know earlier on it was kind of thought maybe TPA doesn't penetrate the subrenal space either if you give it intravitreally. So um, I think those are maybe John, some contrasts. How much did you inject just out of curiosity? Um, I think, I have, you know, I don't remember. I've never done it. Um, I'm just curious. Uh, I think we had done, I have to double check. Um, I know I gave anti-VEGF and I gave anti-VEGF and TPA at the same time. Um, I think I did 10 micrograms. Is that mm -hmm. right? No, wait, sorry. It was probably, I probably did the 12.5 micrograms per 0.1. So probably 12.5. Okay. Yeah. I think that I, I, this was done by a few of the doctors when I was in fellowship. I never did it personally. Um, I think they ha this is really a useful option in a very niche sweet spot, I guess. I guess if you don't think the anti-VEGF is going to give you the effect you need. And the problem with all the literature, one of the things that's going to come as we go through this, there's very little comparison between these treatment options. Um, this retrospective study was one example where they did compare it. Um, but it's a retrospective study. There's limitation. They actually didn't find a difference in final visual acuity between the groups. Um, and that's something we'll get to when we finish the surgery discussion is um, how much are we actually achieving with extra interventions versus just anti-VEGF. But um, I think that the other interesting thing, like you said, John, is we don't know, There's I mean, this, this is something that's debated, is how much intravitreal versus subretinal TPA, which Will's going to talk about in a minute, makes that clot liquefy. Cases like the cases that were shown in that Haddenbach paper, um, and this is without anti-VEGF, show pretty decent displacement and kind of reduction of the hemorrhage over time. Uh, but how much of that would the gas have displaced it regardless of the TPA? How much was the TPA actually helping on top of the gas? Because 
there's a lot of variability to this. You can do anti-VEGF with gas. You can do anti-VEGF with gas and TPA. You can you can space them out in time. You try uh, displacement initially and then go to anti-VEGF. So there's a little bit of nuance to, to what you can pick in terms of what you'd like to do. Um, you know, I, I have, I have, I, have uh, I think there are eight or nine surgeons in my practice. And I think at one point we were having a, a journal club type thing about this. And I think every single person does it differently. In, in some in terms of the ingredients and the and the methods of their surgery and so, <laughs> just like you're saying there's a million ways you can skin a cat in this situation yeah and the other interesting thing the hot box theory, remember was pre anti vegf 20 percent of the eyes 21 percent of the eyes had a recurrent bleed um and so that that kind of reemphasizes we all know this but if you are going to do this anti vegf is critical still to kind of reduce the cnv activity uh, the other thing from the Korean study is what kind of gas to use. So the majority of these patients got SF6. They would do face down for 24 days, uh, 24 hours, excuse me, and then uh, up to three days depending on, on the, the doctor and what they preferred. Um, and then the, in this study, if they, with any patient had breakthrough VH, which is uncommon but not, not unheard of, they would do a vitrectomy. So um, it, it, I think that let's talk a little bit about surgery because that's that's pretty interesting and this is an option again this debated back and forth so will do you want to tell us a little bit about the spinal option is the surgery for these patients uh yes sure so um i feel a little bit like i'm describing the contents of jay's refrigerator here i'm about to go to a will study that he probably lived and breathed for the last <laughs> two, the last previous three years um so you you could probably do a better job with this maybe i'll take a stab at it and you can correct me where i'm wrong on the uh on the uh middle end retina study so this is from 2014 and this was uh, the kind of the, all the, the big guys up there, and they it was kind of a retrospective collection of 101 um, consecutive patients uh, from from their uh, OR experience, all of whom received surgical treatment of submacular hemorrhage with subretinal TPA and some some form of pneumatic displacement with either air or gas. And just looking through it, first off, I'll, I'll just kind of touch on their method methodology. It fluctuated a little bit, but in general. They would do a vitrectomy, use a 41-gauge cannula, and inject TPA subretinally uh, into the subretinal space. It was done in either one or multiple uh, sites or kind of tiny retinotomies to create blebs. And they list that they generally injected somewhere between uh, a quarter and a half of a milliliter of TPA and did a subtotal air fluid exchange and then um, put in either SO6, C3FA, or left them under the uh, subtotal air fill and then did a face kind of face 45 degree down position or what we call the prayer position here in Minnesota uh, to uh, to kind of keep them uh, partially face down and displace the cerebral hemorrhage. They had half of the, interestingly, a couple interesting things in this, half the patients were on anticoagulants of some sort, including aspirin, and the average duration of hemorrhage was 16 days. Uh, they had some that were quite a bit less and some that were over a month uh, out. And just to skip ahead to that, those patients that were over a month out still on average did have some visual improvement. Uh, they uh, had they noted that about 80% of eyes had the fluid had the hemorrhage displaced from the fovea um, a couple of days after surgery, and visual improvement was gained in the majority of patients. I'm just reminding myself here: if, uh, the um, the visual the vision was still generally poor, uh, but if you look at the number of three line gainers, it was approximately uh, 20% at um, I'm sorry. Uh, 20% at month three gained three lines, 80% gained one line, and then, uh, sorry, uh, uh, very few lost lines initially, although if you looked out to um, uh, a longer follow-up here at month 12, I think about 20% of eyes ended up losing 
uh, Vision by month 12, which again is going with what Jay was commenting on earlier, that patients had initial improvement and then deteriorated subsequently. Uh, only a certain percentage, I want to say something like half the eyes, ended up getting anti-VEGF postoperatively due to the fact that this was a long-running study. And so um, uh, they, um, it was not uniform use of anti-VEGF. And uh, for postoperative regmentogenous retinal detachments, recurrent subretinal hemorrhage in six patients, and uh, one patient developed a uh, RPE tear uh, postoperatively. So a couple of comments, as you mentioned, the, the anti-VEGF, because this was a long retrospective study, some of these patients were pre-anti-VEGF era, and the patients who got anti-VEGF did better than the patients who didn't get anti-VEGF if you follow them out. Um, the other comment... Yeah, at you, month six. Yeah. Initially, by month three, there wasn't much of a difference. At month six, you started noticing that difference, which implies exactly what, you know that you were saying, that you're controlling the process better with anti-VEGF. Right, right. I mean, the, the, a couple comments. Then we can actually talk about the surgeries because these are interesting to talk about technically. Um, positioning. You, you mentioned positioning, and this is just like you were talking about in your practice that everyone did things a little bit differently. Uh, I remember one of our surgical conferences when I was a fellow, there was this like 20-minute debate about the optimal air fill and the optimal positioning. Um, some people would do a partial fluid air and then keep the patient um, upright and try to displace the hemorrhage inferiorly. Um, some people would do um, one the ear down so that the um, gas would displace the hemorrhage temporally. Some people would um, do face down and do partial. And there are some people who do a full fill. So there's, it was all over the place. Some people do air, some people do SF6. So um, I don't think we know for sure what the optimal positioning and kind of how to move the displace the hemorrhages. Uh, a couple of things that I was taught, and you guys can comment about if you, and this is the most interesting, is how, how do you decide someone is a, a decent candidate for this? So first thing is, there should not be a significant sub-RPE component to the hemorrhage. And OCT is helpful to kind of figure that out. But if there is a large sub-RPE component, you have to understand you're not going to displace that. So then you're achieving less, essentially, by doing the retractomy and trying to displace the sub-retinal hemorrhage, whereas anti-VEGF may be a less invasive and similar kind of outcome in that situation. Uh, the second is, where is the hemorrhage going to go? So if the majority of the hemorrhage is concentrated um, on one side of the fovea, then that's a little easier, in a sense, to displace than... If you know if you have a massive, massive hemorrhage involving both arcades and involving the fovea, the chances of you actually getting a big enough blood and displacing that it's possible, but it may be lower. And um, the third we talked about was uh, medical clearance. These patients are a lot of times unhealthy; they're on anticoagulation. They need to be healthy enough to get the surgery, and um, that's important. Uh, the other thing to talk about we can talk about patient selection, and I'll leave it up to John. Would be um, what's the status of the other eye? What was the baseline vision? how long they've had symptoms for, and if we are going to decide to do this option, when should you make this decision? Is this a time-sensitive decision? John, your thoughts? Um, you know, for, for me, I haven't really done any of these surgeries. Um, I've seen a lot of different techniques described, and I think kind of what you mentioned before about the lack of control group, that's what kind of has given me pause um, overall. I, I would just kind of add to what Will had reviewed that, you know, um, I think it was Dr. Mahmoud um, when he was at Duke had described using actually subretinal gas mm -hmm. to displace yeah. the subretinal air. That yeah. and then um, yeah. oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that that the, the apocryphal story, but I think it's actually true, is that that was initially an accident because sometimes when you're injecting the TPA in the subretinal space, there may be some air in the line, and so they accidentally injected these air bubbles, and they felt like it actually contributed to better displacement. Um, so they they would, they would use that subretinal air. Um, to kind of help with the displacement. The other thing that people will do, just from a technical perspective, you can create a pre-bleb because sometimes it's hard to make sure you're in the right space. You can, you can use BSS initially to create a bleb 
uh, and then use the TPA within that blip to make sure you're in the right space. The other thing you can do, which one of my attendings did, is you can mark the TPA with a little bit of fluorescein. Um, and then when you inject it, you can see exactly where the TPA is going. It gives you much better visualization of exactly what uh, plane the TPA is in. Um, and that's been described by Joe McGuire and Ali Khan from Wills. Um, the, the final thing is, uh, OC, I guess, intraoperative OCT. Uh, Layla was on. She talked a little bit about intraoperative OCT and how people are using it for subretinal gene therapy. But if you have access to intraoperative OCT, I guess that, that could be helpful not only to see exact is there a sub-RPE component if you haven't seen already. You should know that before, but you can see where is the sub-RPE component relative to the subretinal component. And then making sure you're in the right plane with your 41 gauge uh, tip. And the, the, you can hook up the 40, you can do this manually. So you can use the 41 gauge hooked up to the syringe and inject manually, either you or an assistant. But you can hook it up actually to the oil infusion and use the machine. You just drop, drop. basically what you do is hook it up, put it on viscous fluid uh, infusion, for example, on the Constellation. And then you can just drop down the infusion pressure because you obviously don't need it to be as high as when you're putting oil in. And just find that optimal kind of rate outside the eye where it's just kind of dripping at a controlled rate. And then you can do this whole thing controlled with the foot pedal. So that's helpful as well. I, uh, I like doing that. The only problem with doing that is that you have to open more TPA. Yes, yes. To, to fill the line. Uh, and I, to be honest, I have no idea how expensive it is. Maybe it's not expensive at all. I just feel guilty opening like three vials of it to fill that line. And and just and and the other comment, obviously, is we don't want you don't want to over. There's there's toxic dosing for TPA. You don't want to you don't want to use too much. And so if it if you have a line full of it, just you have to be cautious that you're not over injecting TPA. Uh, so that's just a good thing to keep in mind. Um, can I make just one brief comment? Um, you're talking about OCT intraoperative OCT visualization. I certainly, I've seen the paper out of Cleveland Clinic, and I have zero experience with it. But uh, I actually don't. I don't find it that difficult to make sure I'm in the right plane with this. And and the advice that I got, which I'm sure you two know well, is is, is if you as long as you go along the edge of where the hemorrhage is at its densest, that the retina usually is kind of tinted up in that area with somewhat translucent blood underneath it. It's not like the dense red blood. It's kind of a you know, a light pink blood there. And if you choose that area to access, you know you have a little space between the retina and the RPE, and you can see under the retina. It's not like the dense blood right in the middle. And I think that it, it, I, I've, I've not had issue finding the subretinal space as long as I go along that edge right there. Yeah, I, I yeah, think that's a good point. Go ahead, John. Oh, I, I, yeah, I would think that with something um, under the retina that at least you have a little more room to kind of work as opposed to with stem cells where maybe there's already just the attached retina and not yeah. Um, have, you, have you guys seen? Have you guys seen the video of? There are a couple of videos out there of, of people peeling ILM and then just kind of injecting the TPA over the surface of the retina and it goes through the retina and detaches it. Those oh, are, under the principle that the ILM is the barrier to the TPA yeah, molecule gain. and it just goes through the retina and, and there's not even a visible hole there afterwards. It's just like it just kind of percolates through the retina in some fashion. So that's that's kind of similar to um, I've heard that described for subfovial perfluorocarbon where yeah. you, you could just peel the ILM and just aspirate over the retina and the PFO like zips out and then the retina self seals. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's pretty pretty neat. I mean the other thing about that is um, you when you're injecting is you have to be caught, you have to be watching to see that you don't create a macular hole because um, I've seen video and also seen where you're injecting and also you get this burst of heme into the vitreous from the fovea. Um, and sometimes the hemorrhage is so massive and so taut as you're injecting that space, it may, it may kind of uh, push out of there. And then whether or not, again, is that hole something that will close regardless of peeling the ILM? I don't know. I probably would peel ILM in the circumstance if I could just to make my uh, maximize the chance that, that hole is not going to be open postoperatively. But that's another thing to consider. Uh, I mean, Will, I'm going to ask you, you know, John talked a little bit about the lack of comparative data, but 
I mean, for you, it does the does the status of the other eye, the pre the pre bleed vision in the eye you're considering surgery, um, and then the final thing would be kind of the duration of symptoms. So, like, if you are going to make a decision to do a vitrectomy, what's kind of your mental clock for when you think you have that window? Uh, I uh, well, first off, I'll tell you that I'm a I'm a good Bascom Palmer boy. I do monotherapy for the most most people. I don't I don't do a whole bunch of these vitrectomies. <laughs> um, but I, uh, I I I it really has to be the perfect candidate. But um, and one brief thing I'll say is that I I think the perfect candidate for this, and I've had a few patients like this, are when or when they have a parapapillary net. Uh, and then a big subretinal hemorrhage, because then you know the RPE under the macula is really good, um, under the phobia is good, and you know that you have a chance to get a really good outcome if you drain that blood uh, for them. But uh, but I, uh, I I tried to do it as soon as possible, within a week. I did I did one on a weekend a couple weekends ago just because I, I just felt like they really needed to have it done promptly, and I didn't have a lot of time for a while, and I thought it was a good case. So um, I, 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 I do it quickly. Yeah, I was always taught if you're going to make the decision, do it early. Um, so it's kind of a binary thing. It, you can't, let's, for the residents or fellows listening, it's not, it, what's not ideal is if you decide to do anti-VEGF and you inject them and see them in a month, they're like, oh, the hemorrhage isn't better. You shouldn't decide at that point to take this patient to surgery, right? So if you're going to make this call, you should do it from the beginning. Um, and or, or, or one approach you could have is, is to, to, to do an injection on day one, see them back within four or five days, and just see how quickly the injection's working for them. Yeah, I, I, I've heard that too, and I know I have seen that done. My my question about that, if we we looked at the anti-VEGF data, uh, and and just theoretically, I wouldn't expect the blood to significantly improve that quickly. Um, and so I think what might happen, you might, especially if you're early in your career, you're just a little. You're, it's obviously anxiety provoking, especially if this is the patient's better eye or they're in a difficult spot. So the patient's game can be hard, but. I don't know if you're going to see substantial differences in four or five days. If you do, great, then you know that you can be fine. But just because you don't see differences doesn't mean the anti-VEGF isn't going to get you a similar result at that point. It's true. It's going to bias you towards doing earlier surgery. Right. Uh, although the, the one advantage of that is that it gives the patient a little bit of time to kind of um, understand the situation and monitor the vision on their own and kind of come to grasp with it. Right. And in, the, ahead, in the cases in, the, in that Will's paper we were talking about, in those cases that developed the RD, um, was the RD from a break from the injection site, or was the RD from a different peripheral break? Do, do we know that? I, I will can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I always thought that was not from the actually was not from the posterior break from the injections. Those were like peripheral detachments seen in the post-operative period um, in the setting. So of they just had really, like they just had a really high rate of post-vitrectomy detachment then, or like was that? You know, it seems like a little high. I guess maybe there were some 20-gauge patients in here, too, maybe, which could also... I, I, I can't, I can't right. comment on the, the Will study, but the submacular surgery trial study uh, that looked at... I, we didn't talk about this, but the, there was a part of the submacular surgery trial series. They, they had a series where they looked at actually mechanically evacuating the submacular hemorrhage. Right. Um, plus or plus or minus TPA, and and they had a really high rate of retinal detachment and a really high rate of retinal detachments that weren't anatomically repairable. Uh, uh, and I can't remember the exact numbers; they're not right in front of me. But, but it was. But, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Oh no, but that's isn't that because they were working a lot more posteriorly to like remove, you know, to basically flip the retina and remove everything. Yeah, yeah, but um, um, and but what I've heard from people who were in that in that study, and I, I confess I don't know the data, but is that is that some of those were from like these big posterior retinotomies where they stretched them open to pull out a big clot of blood, but but many of them were from peripheral breaks, but they had this because of the blood in the eye, they had this kind of inflammatory milieu that had a really high rate of PVR development. Uh, and so I think they had a high, you know, I, and I've always heard that when the eye detaches after this kind of a surgery, 
it, it can be a really ugly detachment because of PVR. Uh, and again, I, I've, I haven't personally seen it, thank goodness, but I, I just have heard that they can be pretty nasty detachments. Although the wheel study, I think they repair them all pretty, uh, effectively with just the simple vitrectomy afterwards. So I don't know. Oh, when I was when I was at Columbia, um, we had a patient with a submacular, just a massive submacular um, hemorrhage from polypoidal, and actually one of my colleagues took her to the OR. They did TPA in the office like a few days before, and then they did an external subretinal hemorrhage drainage. So just like you might drain from a scleral buckle, you know, in a scleral buckle procedure, they actually they did a vitrectomy, but then when they did the drainage, they cut down from the sclera through the choroid and drain the fluid that way, the hemorrhage that way. And it anatomically made a big difference. Obviously, when you have that much hemorrhage, you're not really as concerned about vision. But kind of with that same principle that, um, you know, making a retinotomy in a patient with that huge hemorrhage might just have so much inflammation that you could be at a higher risk for a bad RD. So Yeah, this There's a paper on, on external drainage of polypoidal retinal hemorrhage. Um, I'm trying to find it right now, actually, because he reminded me of that. Anyway, I, I think from a, from a technical perspective, that would be a great option in the setting of a hemorrhage that occupies a greater area further away from the posterior pole. But I feel like you could do it if it was just macular, like a, a submacular hemorrhage localized to the macula. I would just be a little more nervous about doing a cut down that posterior and close to both the macula and the optic nerve. But maybe I'm just not. You don't, as, you don't, you don't Jay. You don't do regular cut downs underneath the macula. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I've kind of, I've kind of sworn those off since I became an attending. <laughs> I just, uh, I'm getting too old for that. <laughs> um, so let, let's think about this. So why do we think? And I referenced this before, and then Will, you know, talked about this. Why do these patients gain vision and then lose it? No one knows the answer to this. Um, there's been theories about this, but you guys are two of the smartest people I know. I mean, why do we think this happens? <laughs> And I'll let Will go first. <laughs> I'll, I'll let Will take most of the smartest part. Um, uh, dude, I I don't know. You definitely you, uh, you set me up for failure here. Uh, I I I I think that the majority of the reasons just progressive atrophy, uh, and and uh, I don't know whether that's due to the 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 effect of the subnormal hemorrhage itself, or just the effect of the underlying event of the RPE rip or the or the really bad net that caused it in the first place. And I, I don't, I, does the, the TPA, again, the TPA can cause toxicity um, to the retina, but I don't think that that's uh, likely a, a big issue with normal dosing. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's just the underlying disease. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, exactly. Macular duration. I mean, this is just, you know, just like looking at the CAT trial and everything, right, where people get better after a few months of treatment. And then if you look at one year, two year, you know, now you're starting to get back to where you were, you know, and uh, it's, I think that's a big part of the disease, right? Atrophy and um, that, that portion of things probably is, is accounting for some of the, the vision loss also. Yeah, and just because I like circling back to my successes because there's so few and far between <laughs> the uh, doing the, uh, it, the ones that I've done that are on parapapillary nets or extramacular net, you know, extrafoveal nets, they, those, those look awesome. They do awesome long-term. But in just final, final reference, because uh, we're both all... Uh, had some training at basketball where Phil Rosenfeld always used to talk about this is something that's been debated but his thought is any AMD patient with submacular hemorrhage unless there's a wrap lesion they might have some component of an RPE rip um, because there has to be a source for the bleeding um, and so his his one of his reasons and it's funny he and Dr. Flynn had a debate about this very topic of grand rounds within the last year he was actually uh, in favor of earlier surgery for these patients Dr. Flynn was not uh, he was in favor of anti-VEGF 
but it's just interesting to think there is a component of RP dysfunction, RP rip that caused the hemorrhage in the first place. And just like we talked about trauma, the location of that and how that kind of evolves over time probably has a lot to do with the visual acuity result in the end. But uh, it's an interesting discussion. I think, so and Will, you referenced the, the Baskin paper and how it's useful. Um, and I think the other thing, just from a practical perspective, it's probably legally very helpful too to have that, right? Because I think that no one wants to feel forced to do surgery. Uh, for example, let's say this patient's monocular, they were 2030 and now they're 2400. Um, you may want to try to get the patient an earlier kind of visual result, or, but you don't necessarily thankfully have that pressure if you don't feel it's the right thing to do because you have a legitimate non-surgical option uh, which shows efficacy and there's been no study showing greater efficacy of one or the other. So for, just for the comment from a legal perspective, that's nice to have options as a surgeon and not feel like you're pushed into something because of a difficult situation. Yeah, I, and and uh, and also just for the, you know, many, many patients don't really want to go to surgery. So now that I can sit in front of them and say, you know what, there's this good paper out there that indicates that if you just stick with the shots on a monthly basis, you're probably going to do more or less just about as well. And so it gives them a little bit of peace of mind too. Does, John, um, for ahead. you guys, does does vitrectomy do you, does the you know the concern that maybe vitrectomy um, affects the ability or you know changes the clearance time of anti-VEGF medication in the future? Does that does that weigh in at all for you guys in terms of making this decision? That's a great. Like, yeah, you know, it, you're do vitrectomy, but they'll need anti-VEGF in the future. So now maybe you're affecting their ability to concentrate that medication when you give it um, down the line. That's a great point, and that's a similar conversation, completely different topic, but anytime you take a diabetic to surgery uh, or anyone who might need long-term injections, but AMD especially, that, that would weigh in my mind a little bit. Um, I, I don't want to kind of line up in front of the firing squad here, but I, 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 know, I, I've, I've, I know what people say about that, and I've seen some of the, the, the data on, the, on that, but I, just, I personally have, have never seen an eye that I felt like post-vitrectomy was substantially different in terms of its anti-VEGF duration. Uh, have you all have you all seen that? I, I just haven't seen it, and I've done a lot of. I feel like I've seen a lot of this scenario, and they, they just maybe it's an extra week, but it really isn't that significant for me. It's I, it's it's extremely anecdotal. I think you know, like yeah. I I don't have I don't have any concrete evidence. I mean, we know that the medication does clear quicker, but is that clinically significant? I guess right. Well, like, the, the, right. The, the thing that's debated, right, is, is does the extent of your vitrectomy matter? Some people say, well, if you don't shave the inferior base, then there's a place for it to kind of deposit. I mean, this is all kind of anecdotal things that people toss around. Like John said, I have seen that in the case. I think steroids, it's easier to see because with anti-VEGF, like you said, well, if there is a difference, you know, let's say it lasted five weeks before, maybe it lasts four and a half weeks. It's not something you can pick up clinically. But since intravitreal steroids for diabetic macular edema, for example, should last three to four months, maybe that difference is accentuated. So like intravitreal triamcinolone, for example, I've seen anecdotally cases where they're vitrectomized where it'll last two months instead of three months. But um, again, that may be clinically significant for a longer acting suspension. For a shorter acting suspension like anti-VEGF, maybe the percentage difference is still there, but the actual tangible difference in terms of days may not be as big. I mean, you know, the, the dosing of the medicine is so much greater than, you know, kind of the amount of VEGF receptors in the retina anyway. So maybe, you know, you're flooding it regardless. And so if you flood it and there is a post-vitrectomy or not, maybe that's not a big difference. But I don't know, it's just something to throw out there. I guess the other question I had for you guys was when you see someone with a subrenal hemorrhage, and I think, you know, the other thing we didn't really distinguish when we were talking is kind of these massive subrenal hemorrhages where, you know, they're kind of going 
beyond the arcades even maybe, um, as opposed to kind of these smaller subretinal hemorrhages, um, which might be just more central. But do you ever make any recommendations in terms of their systemic anticoagulation? Um, you know, should they change their prophylactic aspirin or Coumadin or anything like that? Um, uh, we're going to close uh, because Will's got to run. But I'll just say one oh, quick sorry. One, no, 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 but I'm going to say one quick point. I, and Will can comment before he goes. But I, oh, I yeah, never yeah. really make recommendations for antiplatelets or anticoagulation based on a retinal finding, just based on the literature we have, whether it's a diabetic with VH or an AMD patient with submacular hemorrhage. I feel like if they're on it for a legitimate reason for their health, then I think you should stay on it. You can always evaluate with the PCP or cardiologist if it's absolutely necessary, but that always takes precedence for me. Yeah, my only comment is, didn't John give a talk earlier on your podcast about blood thinners and like big meta-analyses or something? So uh, <laughs> far be it for me to comment on that in his, in his presence. Uh, but no, I, I, I agree. Well, John, Will, thank you so much for your time. This was a great discussion. We ran a little over, but hopefully people will appreciate it. And for listeners, if you have any ideas for future similar discussions, we're happy to do it and uh, do a kind of a review and then discussion of the options for other uh, treatment conditions. So, John, Will, thank you guys. Thank you Thanks, guys Jake. very much. Bye-bye. Yep. As always, you can find this episode and all prior episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. We have 90 episodes up there, including this one. They can be found there, sorted in categories. Our blog is also up with similar topics covered. On the website, you can sign up for our mailing list to get updates on the most recent episodes. At the bottom are links to subscribe in the iTunes store as well as Google Play. You can find us on Twitter at Retina Podcast as well as on Facebook. And to contact us, click on the contact us link on our website or emails at retinapodcast at gmail.com. Feedback super important. This episode, uh, if you liked it, came from feedback from one of our physician listeners. And if you have ideas or thoughts on something you'd like to hear covered in a future episode, please let us know. Positive reviews are super helpful. So we have five stars right now across the board in the iTunes store. Anyone who has not left a review, we really appreciate feedback. Even if it's negative, give us some feedback so we can continue to improve. Many thanks to Dr. Chang and Dr. Park for joining me. Uh, thank you to Louie, Mike, and Angela for the production. And thank you, the listeners, for continuing to do what you do on a daily basis, the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's <laughs> mouth. <laughs>